Well, hey, everybody. It's great to be with you. And thank you for joining us from whichever campus you're at, here at Flower Mounds or in the venue or at Denton, love you guys, or online, or for the first time in Valley Creek history, the Louisville campus. We love having you guys join us. And you may not understand what a rush of emotion that is for me, because it is exactly three years to the day that we had our first preview services at the Denton campus. This exact same weekend, three years later, that Louisville is having theirs, and yeah, that's awesome. And I'm just thinking back to three years ago, you know, we were just wondering, you know, like, will this even work, this whole multi-site thing and doing another campus? I mean, like, really, will this work? And to look three years later that we're still doing it and we're doing it again. Like, it's awesome to look at the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of you guys to follow him into everything that he's leading us to and everything that God could see. Because I could never see myself standing here welcoming the Flower Mound campus, much less all of our other campuses. But God sees so much more than we do. And that starts to take me towards what I want to talk about with you guys today. So uh, let me tell you a little story to get started. You guys have heard the term that perception is reality. That perception is reality, but it's truer than you may realize that how you perceive things will determine your reality. It's what you will believe as truth. See, last month we took a family vacation to California and we went to Disneyland. And one of the things that you do at Disneyland when you have little girls is you meet the Disney royalty, the Disney princesses. And, and, and the top of the food chain for Disney royalty for our four-year-old girl, Bennett, is Queen Elsa and Princess Anna from Frozen. Everybody's got them, right? You know, the let it go, let it go. So Elsa and Anna. Now, for me, this wasn't really that big of a deal. I mean, my, my perception of it was, you know, Elsa and Anna are, are cartoon characters, so they're not real. So here we are standing in the longest line for anything we have done at Disneyland to meet two girls who are pretending to be Elsa and Anna. And the thing I really was most impressed by was just how incredibly happy they were to see every little girl. And I'm thinking to myself, this has got to be like a one-day job because there's no way anyone can be this happy hour after hour, day after day, just floored me. I'm like, there's no way. It's got to be just like you work once a month. But for Bennett, her perception, oh my goodness, it's like she had just stepped into a world of dreams come true. I mean, right in front of her eyes was the Elsa and Anna. I mean, she could touch them. She could talk to them. They knew her name. It was a surreal experience for her. And it's amazing just how much perception impacted that because we were experiencing the same thing, but we had completely different responses based on our perception. And the same is true for us in all areas of life. Like we do it with possessions. We think, man, if I just had that house, that car, that boat, those shoes, everything would be different. But we do it with relationships. If I just knew that person or if I was in a relationship with them, everything would change. 
We do it with vacations, with titles, with appearances and abilities. And if we could just do that, if we could just experience this, if I could have that, everything would be different. Because how you perceive things is what you determine as real, as your beliefs. And so it determines how you live and respond. And that's a big deal because what if your perception is off? Especially about God or yourself or other people? What if you're making decisions, you're living life, you're doing things that are based on a perception that doesn't come from truth? It comes from experiences or passed down opinions or even offenses, and it's not, in fact, reality. Because one thing that I have learned is how much our experiences can shape our perceptions. And something we say a lot around Valley Creek is, don't let your experiences determine your theology, but rather, let your theology determine your experiences. Another way you could say that is like this. Don't build your beliefs from how you perceive things, but rather perceive things from the foundation of your beliefs. I'm going to say that again. Don't build your beliefs from how you perceive things, but perceive things from the foundation of your beliefs. So what I want to talk to you guys about is perception, seeing how God sees. Specifically, how God sees you and how he sees other people. And what could happen if we begin to see the same way? If we begin to see ourselves the way that God does, and we begin to see the people in our lives the way that God does. And that's the order that it has to go in. Like, that is one and two. Because if you don't have a healthy view of yourself, you will never have a healthy view of other people. But if we can start seeing as God sees, I think you can radically change your perspective, which can radically change your reality, which can radically change your life. So let's start with how God sees us. And if you've spent much time reading the Bible, you, you know that God has a really unique way of seeing people. And there's numerous examples. You can go all through the Bible, but I'm going to zero in on one. I want to look at David. David's one of my most favorite people in the Bible. So if you've brought your Bible, you can turn over to 1 Samuel 16. And I want to look at a passage of Scripture here that is the early part of David's life. This is before he was uh, you know, a leader before he was a commander, before he was a warrior or a king. This is when he was just a boy. He was a shepherd. And what's happening leading into 1 Samuel 16 is you have Saul. King Saul is the king of Israel. And Samuel is God's prophet for Israel. And Saul is, is really, he's not following the Lord anymore. And so Samuel is, is grieving this. That has him, him grieved. And so let's pick up in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 16. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So here you see that Saul, who is no longer following the Lord, Saul is now, or the Lord has told Samuel, I'm going to replace him. I've got somebody new that I want to anoint as king. And so Samuel journeys to go and meet Jesse, who has these seven sons, that he's going to present them to him. So we jump to verse 6. It says that when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, the firstborn, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. But the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then one by one, 
Jesse's sons continue to be presented, and each time he says, this is not the Lord's anointed. And after all of the sons have passed by, all six of them, he asked Jesse, he says, do you have any more sons? Because he knew what the Lord had told him. And Jesse says, well, actually, my youngest son, David, I do have one more, but he's out in the field tending sheep. And Samuel says, go get him. Bring him here before me. And so they go to get David, and they bring him to Samuel. And when he comes before him, it says in verse 12, then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now, what just happened made no sense to anyone. Because culturally, the firstborns got all the responsibilities and all the glory in the family. And so you can see the impact of experiences, of tradition on their perception of the situation. That even though, you know, Samuel, who is God's own prophet, even though as, as closely as he was with the Lord, he still went into the situation immediately going for the firstborn. He didn't even consider anything else. He didn't even second guess it. When he saw the firstborn, he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. He didn't look at the second or the third or the fourth. He, he never even considered, wow, it's going to be the last. It's going to be the youngest, the one who is the shepherd. But God told him, he said, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outside, but I look on the heart. See, Samuel was perceiving things through experience and tradition and culture, and even to a degree on appearance. And so he missed it. He missed seeing as God sees. And look at David's own father, Jesse. He didn't even bother to bring David. I mean, when he looked at David, he, did, he saw the youngest. He saw the last. He just saw a shepherd. And he missed it. He missed seeing as God sees. But when God looked at David, he saw David's heart. He saw all of him, and he looked through his eyes of love, his eyes of wisdom, his eyes of eternity, and God didn't see the last. He saw the first. He didn't see the leftover. He saw the best. He didn't see a shepherd. He saw a mighty warrior. He didn't see insignificant. He saw a king. He saw all of David and everything he had for David, and then he declared it out over him. He said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Rise and anoint him. This is the one. And here's where the rubber really meets the road. Is David didn't miss it either. He saw what God saw and he believed it. He saw how God saw him. In the face of how everyone else was perceiving him, Samuel, his father, his brothers, he chose to focus on the Lord and begin to see what God sees. And he went from being a shepherd to a warrior, from a nobody to a hero, from tending sheep to slaying giants, from working in a field to ruling in a palace. He began to see himself as God saw himself, and it became his reality. Now, I know some of you have had people perceive you in some pretty crummy ways. And it's been like David for some of you. It's been those closest to you. Maybe you've had your, your parents or some mentors or, or a spiritual authority in your life that they've looked at you and they've missed it, seeing what God sees. And that's had a really horrible impact on you because it's impacted the way you view yourself. It's impacted your beliefs. And it's even impacted the way that you think God views you. Like maybe you think God looks at you 
and he sees a mess or he sees a failure or he sees a problem. You need to remember that God doesn't see you the way that the world does. He looks at you completely differently and his reality is a higher reality. I mean, think about Paul, the apostle Paul. The world looked at Paul and they saw Paul the persecutor, but God looked at him and they saw Paul the apostle. And when Paul encountered Jesus, it changed everything. When Paul began to know how Jesus saw him, he began to believe it, and oh, did that change his reality. I mean, he went from killing and persecuting Christians to giving his life for them. Look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, 17. He writes, from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Because everything changes with Jesus. When you are in Christ, you can now know that when God looks at you, he looks at you with favor. He looks at you with love because he sees Jesus. That you may still sin, but when God looks at your heart, he sees pure righteousness because he sees Jesus. That's why Paul writes at the beginning of that passage, from now on, regard no one from a human point of view. The most important no one to not regard from a human point of view is yourself. You have got to see yourself as God does, as new. See that new heart, see that new life, and now begin to see that new reality. To see that God looks at you and he loves you. But can you believe that? Can you begin to see yourself as God does and actually believe it? I mean, may we be like that. May we be like Paul and like David to actually choose to know and believe the way that God sees us. I love 1 John 4, 17 says, in this world, we are like Jesus. In this world, God doesn't see a mess. He sees Jesus. And he doesn't see it someday. He sees it now, right now. Psalm 139, I love the words that David writes. Listen to this. He says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. David knew exactly how God saw him. He knew that he saw him before he even created him. He knew that he saw him in every moment of every day at every place, that he saw his every thought and word and action. And David didn't write those words in fear knowing that. He wrote it in praise and wonder, knowing that God saw all of it and he loved him. And the same is true for everyone who is in Jesus. God sees you through his word. He sees you through his love. He sees you through his son, Jesus. And if you can begin to believe that and see that, it will change everything. Watch your reality begin to change as you see as God sees. Because perception is reality. And how we view ourselves 
changes everything. And the same is true with how we see others, how we view other people. So let's shift a little bit here and talk about not only how God sees us, but how God sees others. Now, everybody knows the old saying, you, sh- you can't judge a book by its cover, except we always judge books by their cover. Like, we do it all the time. We judge books by their cover. You know, like I said, we just took this family vacation last month to California, and when we were flying home, uh, I sat in our uh, seat on the airplane, and then I noticed that the row in front of me, this guy comes to sit in, and he's, he's about the same age as me, so he's this really young guy, and he, he's... <laughs> He's, he's kind of all thugged out, like he's got his black flat bill hat going, and I can tell he's got a mohawk, and he's got his black t-shirt, and he's all tatted up, and he's got like a strong beard, real strong beard, and he's got his chain going to his wallet. I mean, he's a hardcore dude, and so he sits down in the seat in front of me, and flight takes off, and a little, you know, a while into the flight, I, I start getting bored, so I'm looking around, and I notice he's got a laptop open, and he's watching a movie, and so I'm kind of like... Just curious what he's watching, and you know, I assume some hardcore he's watching Walking Dead or Reservoir Dogs, like you know, something that lined up with what he looked like. And as I'm looking over, I see the dude's watching the BFG, the Big Friendly Giant, like that <laughs> Disney movie that my kids are watching all the time right now. And I'm, I almost call him out on him, like, dude, you're you're on this plane by yourself and you're watching the Big Friendly Giant. Except I really like that movie too, so I didn't say anything. <laughs> but we judge books by their cover. And how we perceive people will set in motion how we interact with them, how we respond to them. So think about how you perceive people. Like, do you view other people as a nuisance? Do you view them as an obstacle? Do you view them as a problem? Do you view them as a means to an end? Do you view them as competition or a threat? Because that is how the world perceives other people. But how does God perceive others? And if we want to know that, the the best example to look at, there's no greater example to look at than Jesus. Because Jesus looked at everyone through the eyes of his father. And it completely altered the way that Jesus responded to the people around him versus how other people did. So let's look at a couple of examples of, of Jesus interacting with people like Jesus and Zacchaeus. Okay, so... We're all probably, a lot of us, familiar with Zacchaeus. There's a couple of things that everybody knows about him. Like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Good job. And he climbed a sycamore tree. Okay, a wee little man and a sycamore tree. Like, it's kind of odd that those two things are in the story. Because it feels like in the story of Zacchaeus, those are the two things that could be left out. So it's, it's fascinating that those are there. And, and really... There's a real specific reason why the Bible has those there. So let's read the story about Zacchaeus, and then let me unpack that with you. So in Luke 19, verse 1, it says that Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now there is so much more 
than what meets the eye in this story. Because what this story really is all about is perception. How others pursue somebody versus how God uh, perceives somebody. How God sees versus how others see. See, the reason the Bible was telling us about his height in the sycamore tree was to give us a bigger perspective of Zacchaeus. To really let us see more about his life. You see, the sycamore tree is a huge fruit tree. It's part of the fig family. And one of the jobs that people would have in ancient Israel is as a fruit picker. And so as you could imagine, like one of the things that would help you out in, in being able to climb around a tree and pick fruit is if you were of small stature. So what the Bible really is telling us is it's giving us a snapshot into the earlier part of Zacchaeus' life of most likely what he did. That because he was a small person, he was most likely a fruit picker. So he would climb sycamore trees and other trees to pick the fruit. But also in ancient Israel, this was a job that was really looked at as a lowly job. So people looked down on people who were fruit pickers. So really you were looked down on in every way because of your stature and because of what your job was. And so we began to see very quickly how people perceived Zacchaeus. They looked at him as insignificant and small. And Zacchaeus knew this. And it began to set him on his path of life, of looking through eyes now of pain and offense that became his reality of, I'm going to find a way to have significance. I'm going to find a way to pay you back. And so he becomes this tax collector where now he has power over people and he has this perceived influence over people, but he becomes this cheat in the center. And that's how then people see him. They see him as now a cheat in the center. And it's what also became his reality. So people perceive this person who is insignificant and small and who is this cheat in the center. But what did God see? See, he saw a story of grace and redemption. He saw a story that was written before Zacchaeus was even born. Let me tell you about just first the name. So Zacchaeus is actually a Hebrew name, Zacchaeus. That means pure, not guilty. And the sycamore tree has another name in Israel. It's called the restoration tree. Because the sycamore tree, unlike any other tree in Israel, it has an ability to restore itself. You can cut a sycamore tree down to nothing. It can get buried in sand in the desert, and it will restore itself. So when Jesus looked at Zacchaeus, he saw a story of grace written before he was even born that began to be told by his very name, pure, not guilty, that was, began to be told even more in his design, his stature, where he would climb this tree that he would see as a mark of shame that he would hate, but that then he would then climb later that would define what God was doing in his life, restoring him. If you look at verse five, it's fascinating. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and he said, Zacchaeus. When Jesus reached the spot, the spot where the restoration tree was, the tree that God saw long before. And Jesus looked up at him. And for the first time in his life, Zacchaeus wasn't being looked down on. Someone was really seeing him, looking at him. And then Jesus calls him by name, pure, not guilty. Today, I'm coming to your house. Grace has come to you. 
Jesus saw what could be in the midst of what was. He saw Zacchaeus as the very restoration he came to do when everyone else saw insignificant, a thief, inferior, a cheat. Jesus saw the very why that he was there. He saw all of him and he loved him. He said, I came to seek and save Zacchaeus. I came to seek and save the lost. Because you see, when we see others the way that God does, we no longer look down at them, we look up for them. We look up for all that God has for them. And how about Jesus and the woman with the alabaster jar? You know, in Luke 7, there's this story about Jesus going to Simon the Pharisee's house. So Simon, he's a Pharisee, he's a religious leader. And he has Jesus come to his house and it says, while they're there, there's this woman who's a prostitute that she comes and she stands behind Jesus and she's weeping. And her tears wet his feet and so she washes his feet with her hair. And then she begins to kiss his feet and then she pours an expensive perfume of oil out on his feet. And it says, when Simon sees this, he's appalled at it. And he says, this Jesus can't really be who he says he is. If he knew what kind of woman this was, He wouldn't let her touch him because she is a sinner. All that Simon can perceive is through his own self-righteousness. So he sees condemnation and judgment. That's the only thing that he can see. And so Jesus tells him a quick story. He says, Simon, there's two men who owe money. One owes 50 pieces of silver and one owes 500. And neither of them can repay it. But the man that they owe it to, he forgives the debt to both of them. Which one do you think was more grateful? And Simon says, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus says, that's right. And then in verse 44, he goes right for Simon's blindness. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? He says, you didn't wash my feet when I came in, but she has washed them with her tears and her hair. You didn't give me a kiss of greeting that's customary, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. And you didn't anoint me with oil as you would with any guest, but she has poured this expensive perfume out on my feet. He said, her sins are many and she has been forgiven much. And so she loves much. But whoever's been forgiven little loves little. What Jesus was revealing was that Simon, in his own self-righteousness, he perceived he didn't need any forgiveness. And so he had no love. He could only see judgment and condemnation. But she could see nothing but forgiveness. And so she perceived only love. Do you see this woman? I think that's one of the most profound questions that Jesus has ever said. And when Jesus was asking that, I think, you know, what he's really asking is, do you really see her? See, I see her. I see her love. And I see her forgiven. I see her as pure. I see her as who I came for. See, when we see others the way that God does, we no longer see what they've done. We see what Jesus has done for them. That's what we begin to see. And so I think the question that we should ask ourselves on a regular basis is the same question that Jesus posed to Simon. Do you see this person? Do you really see them? Do you see that Jesus gave his life for them? That they're exactly who he came for and why he came? Like, think about that with the people in your life. Do you really see your neighbor? 
not the one that frustrates you? Do you really see them? Do you really see your coworkers, your boss? Do you really see that kid at school? Do you see your spouse? Do you see your kids? Are you still looking the way that the world does? Are you seeing a lost cause? Are you seeing a failure? Are you seeing an outcast? Are you seeing an offense? What if you can begin to see the way that God sees? What if you can see what can be in the midst of what is? What if you see the very reason that Jesus came? It can change everything, your perception. So why don't you guys do this? How about just close your eyes with me and let me just ask you to think. See if you can just quiet things around you, close your eyes and just think, how are you perceiving yourself? Are you looking through the eyes of other people? Are you looking through the lens of your experiences? Or are you looking through the eyes of God? Because he truly sees you and he sees all of you. He sees everything he has for you. He sees everything that he has gifted you with. He sees the real you, the one that he knew before you were even born. And he loves you. Can you begin to see that? And can you begin to believe it? Really, how God sees you. And how are you perceiving others? Are you judging them? Are you distancing yourself from them? Are you discounting them or giving up on them? Or can you begin to see them as God does? What can be, not what is. What he's done for them, not what they have done. Because all of us are Jesus' mission. We are his reason, we are his why. May we begin to see that and may it begin to change our realities. And so, Father, we invite you. I ask you, Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you help every single one of us to see more clearly what you see? That everyone who is in Jesus would see themselves as in Jesus, as perfect, as pure, as righteous, as loved. May they begin to see it and may it begin to change the reality of their life. God, we invite you to let us see others through your eyes. God, may we no longer look at people and see competition. May we not see offenses. May we look at them and may we see, Jesus, what you gave your life for. May we see immeasurable worth in every person around us. And may that move us then to a new reality of having hope for them and love for them and life for them. So God, I ask that our perceptions would change and our realities would change and our lives would change. That we would see as you see and we would walk in freedom. We thank you, Jesus. And we pray that in your name. Amen.